Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. So let's look here at this passage of Scripture. And I just want to say from the very beginning, you don't want to have your name show up in the Bible in a bad way, okay? So this is what happens uh, with these two ladies, okay? So Philippians chapter 4, verse 2, we're going to look at verses 2 and 3. I entreat you, Odia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So Paul introduces two ladies, Euodia and Syntyche. Have you ever met a Euodia and Syntyche? I've never met a Euodia or Syntyche. Probably don't want to be named after these ladies. We really don't know what the issue was between these two ladies but what does Paul do? He, he basically, he, the ESV says, I entreat you two ladies. Literally, I beg you, I plead with you to agree in the Lord. Now remember, there's a word I said that shows up in Philippians about eight or nine times. It's the word have the same mind. That's really what Paul's using there. The Greek word there means have the same attitude, have the same mind. You saw it back in chapter 2, verse 2. You saw it in chapter 2, verse 5. We've been seeing it all through Philippians, to be like-minded. So these ladies are not like-minded. They're at odds. They're not agreeing in the Lord. Now, who are these ladies? We really don't know. Now, some scholars have identified them as deaconesses. Maybe they had an official role in the church. Um, Paul basically just says, these women labored side by side with me in the gospel. So some people think these may have been leaders in the church. We really don't know. All we know is it's gotten so bad that Paul asked for a mediator. Now, in verse 3, the ESV has the word true companion. Does anybody have the word syzygous in verse 3? Does anybody have the word, the, the proper name syzygous? Anybody have syzygous? Okay. Does it say something like fellow yoke worker or, or, or yoke worker or fellow worker? Yeah. Okay. So literally, the word there is syzygous. You, you may even have a, a, a little uh, footnote in your Bible. So some people think that maybe the guy's name was Syzygus, that Paul asked to come be a mediator between these two ladies. We don't know if his name was Syzygus or if, you know, basically he was a true companion. But Paul says, listen, these, I'm not, remember, where's Paul at? Paul's in prison. Paul can't go there to mediate this issue, so he says, I'm, I'm asking this guy, whether his name's Syzygous or, or he's this true companion, this yoke fellow, he's going to go and mediate and help these women get along. Now, we don't know what this issue is. It was probably not heresy, or it was probably not immorality. Why do we know that? If it was heresy, Paul probably would have been stronger and basically there would have been church discipline. If it was a matter of immorality, Paul probably would have had church discipline as well. We don't really know, but I'm going to guess. And I'm not being sexist here. Please do not take it that way. Sometimes men and women both are prone to gossip and pettiness. And so it could be that these two ladies got after each other and they were arguing maybe over something petty. We don't know. But it got out of control. 
It got so out of control with these two ladies that Paul had to say, hey, I need you, guys, I need you ladies to get along, and if you can't get along, I'm going to have to have a mediator come and get you two along. Um, I remember the first, probably the, the second or third Wednesday night at Emmanuel Baptist Church when I first came here. I first came here, it was in the old building over on Sydney. It was a Wednesday night. Two ladies in the church were at odds because their kids were at odds and they were actually going at each other in the fellowship hall and I had to pull them apart and I had to sit them in my office. And I remember at that time Steve Smith was, he was the closest guy I could find. So Steve, come, come with me. Um, Steve's one of our growth group leaders. And so like three this is like the third Wednesday night in Emmanuel, and I'm, I had to mediate between these two ladies that were about ready to attack each other. And I'm like, oh, welcome to Emmanuel Baptist Church. This is, this is fun. Um, not that that happens all the time, but that's the picture here is these two ladies are at odds, and Paul says, hey, I'm sending this guy to come, come deal with this. And again, we don't know what the issue is. All we know is they're not agreeing in the Lord. But what do we do know? Whether we know exactly what these ladies are doing, what do we do know often happens in the life of the church? We need to always be on guard against gossip. Gossip happens a lot. Slander, backbiting, and divisions. How would you like your name to show up in the Bible and all that was known about you is that you were a troublemaker who was causing problems in the church? Probably wouldn't like that. Now, Agree. Let's talk about that word agree. Does agree mean that you will always 100% come to full agreement with every single person at Emmanuel Baptist Church every single time on every single issue? No. You may not agree with me as your pastor at times. And so you may not agree with maybe some of the the way we do things here at Emmanuel, and that's, that's totally fine. We're called to be unified, not always unanimous. Now, we hope that we're always unanimous, if that's at all possible, but we're always going to have differences on secondary issues. Now, on dogma, you know, dogma, doctrine, preferences, on dogma, we've got to be all unified. We, we can't deviate on the, the key things. But on those secondary things, those things that maybe cause problems in the life of a church that are probably more personality-driven than they are doctrinally-driven. Um, so let's turn one book backwards. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 4. And I want to pick up on this because I briefly mentioned it on Sunday. But I want to ask you a question. Sunday we talked about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. That's not where I'm going to go tonight. But my question is, what grieves the Holy Spirit? What grieves the Holy Spirit? Okay, let's read Ephesians 4, starting in verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Okay, let's just stop right there. What are some things Paul's been saying? Don't lie to each other. Don't backbite. Be encouraging, watch your tongue, don't steal, be honest. Okay, then look at verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So let's just ask contextually there what comes before verse 30, what comes after verse 30. What grieves the Holy Spirit when Christians do not get along? When we gossip, when we backbite, when we lie, when we tear each other down, when we don't encourage, when we're not kind, when we're not tenderhearted, when we're not loving one another, 
we grieve the Holy Spirit. And so these two ladies were causing problems in the church. They were not getting along. Now, we don't know how it affected the entire church. But let me just ask you a question. If there are two people that aren't getting along in the life of a church and their name is being written about, do you think, before Paul had to write to them, do you think the whole church knew what was going on? Okay. Now, somebody could have said, I'm with Euodia. No, I'm on, I'm on Syntex side. I'm on Yodia's side. I'm on Sentai. So you got the Yodia group and the Sentai group, and you got these two factions. We don't know if that happened there, but we can easily see how that does. Now, what does the Bible say about we as a church family, how we're to get along? Romans 12, 4 through 5, for as in one body we have many members, and members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. We are the body of Christ. We are interconnected in a relationship with one another. And when we're at odds, or when we're not agreeing, or when there's division, it's not healthy for the body. It's toxic. 1 Corinthians 12, 24-26. God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, so that there may be no division in the body. He's talking about the church there. But that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member's honored, all rejoice together. Okay. I want to go on a little diversion because we have an example here in the Bible of two ladies that did not get along. So much so that Paul had to send a guy to say, I'm going to mediate between these two ladies. So here's the question. How do we resolve conflict in the life of the church. Now, do not raise your hand. How many of you like conflict? How many of you like to confront? How many of you like to go and deal with other people's business and, and stir the pot and try to, try to confront? Okay, most Christians don't like doing that. So I want to ask you to turn in your Bibles. We'll go back to Philippians, but turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. And let's see Jesus' instructions on how we are to deal with conflict in the life of the church. And this is probably something you've read before, but I just want to remind you of how we do it. How, how Jesus instructs us to do it. If you have a conflict with somebody in the church you are immediately to go behind their back and gossip and gather a coalition and try to get people to get on your side, right? Is that the way the Bible speaks? He's speaking heresy. I was just making sure you're awake tonight. Some of you are like, what? All right. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Okay, what's the first step? If you have a conflict with somebody or somebody sinned against you, what are you supposed to do? You are supposed to go to that person privately, individually, and try to work it out. Now, that's, where, that's, where, that's the first step. What's our, what's our natural reaction? To go to somebody else and gossip about them. Now, let's be very careful here. I want to be very careful. There's a borderline between gossip and then going to somebody you trust and asking for counsel about how to confront that person. You understand what I'm saying? You can, if you need to confront somebody, I don't think it's wrong for you to go to a person you trust and say, listen, I've got to talk to this person. Can you give me advice on how best to do that? But you've got to really make sure it doesn't turn into gossip. Okay, so first step, you go talk to the person. If the person confesses, if the person repents, if there's reconciliation, you don't need to go any further. It's a done deal. Okay, what happens if you go to the person and they don't respond, they don't repent, there is no reconciliation? What, what are you allowed to do at that point? Take two or three others with you. 
Now, this is where the elders in the life of the church are helpful because we can be mediators. I can't tell you how many times over the years we as elders have had to deal with things like this or, you know, I've had to sit in, um, you know, on situations like this. What happens if you settle it at that point? It's done. Okay, what happens if that person doesn't repent after having two or three people come and confront them? You bring it to the entire church. Now, what happens if it's brought before the entire church and they repent before the entire church? It's good. What happens if they don't? Kick them out. <laughs> you are to treat them as a tax collector. Okay, so I mean that's the extreme. The, the extreme level is to bring somebody before church discipline for the entire church. But what often happens is that first step is often the most difficult because what would you rather do? What's easier to do? Is it easier to go gossip and complain about somebody, or is it easier to go talk to them and confront them and work things out? Well, basically, it's, that's a that's code word for kick them out of the church and treat them as if they're not saved. Yeah. So, Euodia and Syntyche, these two ladies, were not getting along. And Paul says, I beg you, ladies, get along. For the life of the church, for your own spiritual health, please get along, get over your differences, whatever they are, and work together. And, and try to come together for the health of not only your spiritual life, but for the spiritual life of the church. Okay. All right, I don't want to spend much more time on those two ladies. Let's move into verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. You guys remember that song? Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. Come on, always and again. I say rejoice, rejoice, and again. Some of you are like, I have no idea what he's talking about. It's the same words over and over again, rejoice in the Lord. So here's the question. Why does Paul say it twice? Okay, to make sure you heard it. Why? Rejoice in the Lord always. What, Paul? Wait a minute, stop, Paul. What do you mean rejoice in the Lord always? Yeah, I'm going to say it again. Rejoice. Paul anticipates an objection. What have we been seeing? What's been going on in this letter? What's been going on in the life of this church that Paul is writing this? Okay, what has he just mentioned? Two ladies that aren't getting along. So the objection would be, Paul, how can we rejoice when we have these two women at odds in the church? As we saw a few weeks ago, we have false teachers, these Judaizers infiltrating the church. And there's this persecution from outside, and you're in prison. Paul, how can we rejoice in the midst of all this? Don't, don't tell us to rejoice. There's no reason to rejoice. And Paul says, I will say it again, <laughs> rejoice. Does joy depend upon our circumstances? No. No. Things can be going very badly, and we can still rejoice. It's not being happy, it's rejoicing. Now, in verse 5, let your reasonable, reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Reason, does anybody have a different word besides reasonableness? What? Gentle. It's a very difficult word in the Greek to translate it can mean gentleness, great graciousness. It can literally even mean big-heartedness. Let your big, generous-heartedness be evident to everyone. So let me ask you a question. What do you want to be known for? Do you want to be known for being an irritable, frustrated, grumpy, bitter complainer? Or do you want to be known as a joyous, big-hearted, generous, gracious person? That, that, that's how they would describe you. I, I, I really think about this. You, you, nobody would probably ever tell you this, but when, what, what do you want people, what do you want 
to have be the first thing that comes out of somebody's mouth when they mention your name. Hey, when I think of Sean Cole, I think of dot, dot, dot. <laughs> what are you known for? How would people describe you? Is it your big-heartedness, your gentleness, your graciousness, your generosity? Paul says, let this be known to everyone. Okay, go back to chapter 2. He's already addressed this. Go back to chapter 2. And look at verses 3 and 4. He's already kind of told us what this looks like. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Be humble. Be gracious. Be others-centered. Be big-hearted. Let it be known to everyone. And notice how Paul couches that, how he frames that. Look at verse 5 again, back in chapter 4. Look at verse 5. The Lord is at hand. What does that mean, the Lord's at hand? I think that means the second coming. I think what Paul's saying here is in light of the second coming, why is being gracious and gentle a good testimony to a watching world? He's already addressed this again. So, Here's Paul's point. There's a watching world that's watching you Christians. And as you wait for Jesus to come back, and we don't know when he's coming back, let your big heartedness be known to all. Why? What type of world do we live in? Go back to chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. What did Paul say about the world in which we live? Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. How do you shine as a light? You don't grumble. You don't complain. You're big-hearted. You're gentle. You're humble. You're generous. You're others-centered. Now, what is one of the biggest temptations in a chaotic, frightening, don't-know-the-future world to be anxious. To be anxious. So what does Paul tell us in verses 6 and 7? Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Do not be anxious about anything. Now, stop right there. Anybody anxious about something today? Anybody anxious about finances? Anybody anxious about health? Anybody anxious about our nation? Anybody anxious about your kids, your grandkids? Anybody anxious about grades, about your job, about relationships? There's a lot of things to be anxious about. Paul says don't be anxious about anything. Now, this, this goes to what Jesus taught. So, so turn, I know you guys are turning all over your Bible tonight, but that's good for you because we like to turn pages. So Matthew chapter 6 unless you have an electronic device, and you can just look it up. This is part of the Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew 6.25. And I've done this before on a Sunday morning, and maybe you remember, but I'm going to ask you again to count how many times the word anxious shows up in this passage of Scripture. Okay? Matthew 6.25. This is Jesus. Okay? Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are they not of more value? Are, are you not of more value than they? 
And which one of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all of his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. How many times? Yep. Six times in that short passage of Scripture, what does Jesus tell us? Don't be anxious. God will take care of you. God will provide for your needs. Seek his kingdom. Seek his righteousness. And so this is the beauty of prayer. So let's go back to Philippians. Don't be anxious, but in everything by prayer. Prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your request be made known to God prayer what does Jesus say about prayer well you kind of have to back up where we were in Matthew so hopefully you didn't turn back to Philippians turn back to Matthew I probably should have told you to stay there it's the Lord's prayer When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Let's just stop right there. God knows what you need before you even ask Him. Are you giving God any information when you pray? Does God go, wow, I didn't know that one. That's a new one for me. I wasn't aware of that one. Thanks for letting me know. No, God knows what you need. Okay? Well, if God knows what you need, then why pray? Jesus says, pray like this, our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then the King James says, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. So, Paul and Jesus tell us to pray. When you're anxious, pray. Pray. 1 John 5, 14-15 says this, and this is the confidence we have towards him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we've asked of him. Now, what's the key there? Asking according to his will. Oh, Lord, I'm so anxious. Would you please give me a Maserati? If not, a Porsche will do. Maybe a Lamborghini. Because the neighbor down the street has one, and I really want one. Praying according to God's will. Now, Paul here, if you look at these different ways that Paul describes prayer, he kind of defines how we should pray. But in everything by prayer, what, what really is prayer? We pray with reverence. What's prayer? It's coming into the presence of God, knowing that He is sovereign and good, and He's the Lord. And then we pray with humility. What does supplication mean? Does anybody know what supplication means? Anybody have a different word there? Supplication means that you're not coming in and demanding God answer your prayer. You're coming in and humbly asking Him. I had a friend once that was a pastor. He's no longer a pastor now. Um, but he told, I used to listen to him a lot. 
um, preach, and he was telling a story. Actually, he preached in this church, but um, he's no longer in the ministry. But he told a story about how he was on vacation, and he went to a church on a Sunday morning, and the pastor, during the prayer time that he was sitting in the audience, the pastor of the church he was visiting, kept praying, Lord, I demand that you do this. Lord, I command that you, like he was commanding the Lord. And my friend said, I, I looked up to see if he was going to be struck by lightning, like before the prayer was over, because he was demanding and commanding things of the Lord. Um, supplication is not demanding or commanding from the Lord. It's praying with humility, asking. And then also, thankfulness. I've been, I mean, what's next week? Thank, Thanksgiving's an overlooked holiday, isn't it? You go straight from Halloween to Christmas. And like Thanksgiving's kind of like, okay, we'll go buy a turkey. And, but I've been really thinking a lot about thankfulness. Let me ask you a question. Have you thanked God today for something that he did in your life that you weren't expecting? Or you just kind of live every day like, oh, that's what God's job is. His job's to bless me. His job's to take care of me. Well, yes, but how thankful are we? What's the opposite of thankfulness? Un well, unthankfulness, okay. <laughs> Come on now. <laughs> Let, let's think about, about that for a moment. A sense of entitlement? A sense of resentment? A sense of, I didn't get what I want? Maybe even bitterness? It's sin? <laughs> What'd you say? Sin? Yeah. I mean, so, we pray with reverence. We pray with humility. We pray with thankfulness, but then we also pray with specificity. Because what does he say? Let your requests be made known to God. We can pray very specifically. I think it's important to pray specifically. A lot of times our prayers can be, Lord, bless so-and-so, bless me, Lord, help me, Lord, do this, Lord, do that, and it's very generic. I challenge you to be very specific in your prayers. I challenge you to keep a prayer journal so that when God does answer those prayers, you can go back and look. Um, oftentimes, you, how many times have you prayed for something and God actually answered it? I mean, probably a lot, right? How many times did you just kind of keep going on like, okay, God, that's your job to answer it, thanks, and then you moved along, and you never really thanked him or stopped. like, wow, God actually answered my prayers. Now, here's what is very interesting about what Paul does not say. What does Paul tell us to do? Pray. Pray with thankfulness. Pray with humility. Pray with reverence. Pray with specificity. But one thing we don't see in this passage is what? How and when God answers prayer. All it says is that when we pray, we will experience peace. God may not answer our prayers in the way that we think he should have. Verse 7, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, what is the peace of God? There's two ways that the Bible speaks of the peace of God. The first way is a subjective feeling or sense of peace that is grounded in our actual peace that we have with God. So there's one's a feeling of peace and one's a position of permanent peace that we have because of our salvation. And the first one's the position's more important than the feeling because you can't have the feeling without the position. Now, Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have what? Peace. So peace with God. There's peace with God and there's the peace of God. Peace with God means your sins have been forgiven, your record is clean, the righteousness of Christ has been credited to your account. 
You are no longer guilty. You're no longer under condemnation. You are in a permanent position of always being at peace, not at war with God, forever, permanently forgiven, saved, righteous in his presence at all times. So in a sense, this peace, the peace with God, is something you always stand in due to your justification. That's the peace with God. But there's the peace of God. Paul here is talking about the second type of peace. It's a subjective sense of joy and calm and contentment that Christ gives you experientially. That sense of peace. You're always at peace with God in the sense that you're always saved. But when you pray and you're anxious... And even if God doesn't answer your prayer in the way you want him to, what God gives you is a peace that surpasses understanding. In other words, you really can't understand this peace. It's a peace that goes deep inside your heart, that it's a calm, it's a contentment, it's a sense that God is sovereign and all things are going to work out. You've experienced that, have you not? Isaiah 26.3 You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. God keeps you in perfect peace when you trust in him. He gives you that peace that passes understanding when you pray. John 14, 27, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Don't be anxious. Don't be afraid. Jesus says, I'm giving you my peace. I'm giving you peace. And then 2 Thessalonians 3.16. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you at all. At all. With you all. Okay, so no matter what your circumstance You can be going through a really tough time. You can be really, really anxious and really, really burdened. And when you pray, this passage doesn't say how God answers it and when God answers. All it says is that God will give you this amazing peace deep within your heart that puts you at ease, that rests in His sovereignty. And the image that... Paul uses is that peace is going to guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Remember I said, I don't know if it was last week or the week before, Philippi was a military city. They knew what a Roman soldier looked like that would guard a city. The word guard there is a military term implying that this peace stands ready, it stands on duty, to keep out anything that brings care or anxiety. So think about it this way. Whatever you're anxious about tonight, God, through prayer, will give you that peace. And that peace is going to guard your heart and mind to prevent anything coming in there that's going to give you anxiety. 1 Peter 5, 6-7 says this, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Cast your anxieties on Jesus because he cares for you. If you're anxious, cast those anxieties on him. Pray. Don't be anxious. Give those to the Lord. Ephesians 3, 18-21 Paul prays that we may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what's the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love, of, the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Now, this says the peace which surpasses understanding. Here it says the love that surpasses knowledge, that she may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who's able to do far more abundantly all that we can ask or think according to his power that's at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. When we pray, God gives us his love 
that surpasses understanding. God gives us his peace that surpasses understanding. God gives us that joy that surpasses understanding. And if we could understand it, then we would be God. It's something that God puts deep in our heart, whether it's his love, joy, peace, they all kind of moving parts working together. It's that deep sense of calm that you know God will take care of you because he's a good, sovereign father. And his joy is to take care of his children. Doesn't mean he may answer it the way you want him to answer it or when you want him to answer it, but he will give you that peace. He will be with you. So God may not take you out of the trial, but God will be there with you in the trial. That's a hard pill to swallow because what do we want? We want to be taken out. And God may say, the best thing for you is to go through, but I'll be with you, and I'll give you peace, and I'll give you my joy, and I'll give you my deep love. So William Henderson, he's a commentator, says this, God's peace incomprehensible in its grandeur will stand guard at the door of the believer's hearts and thoughts, preventing the entrance of any fears or doubts. Peace stands at the door of your heart like a Roman soldier with big armor, ready to prevent anything that would come in that would be fearful or anxious. All right. So, in verse 6, Paul says, pray. In verse 8, Paul says, think. And in verse 9, Paul says, practice. So this, this section here is, is really framed by three main verbs. We've just looked at prayer. Now Paul's going to shift gears to thinking. And then finally he's going to tell us to practice. Okay, so pray, think, do. Okay, so in verses 8 and 9, we're given two verbs. Think and put into practice. We've just seen pray. Okay, so let's look at verse 8. Finally, brothers... Whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Think. In the original language, that word think means to think deeply, to ponder, to ruminate. To meditate. It's in the present tense, which is very important because it means to always be thinking. Always having your thoughts consumed by these things. Let me ask you a question. What causes anxiety when you start thinking about all the things in your life? Do you see the correlation between thinking and anxiety? Anybody been woken up in the middle of the night with your head racing with so many things you're thinking about? And then what happens? It causes you to be anxious because your mind's going, I've got to do this, I've got to do that, I'm worried about this. And you're just thinking, thinking, thinking about all these things. And that thinking causes anxiety, which then leads you to pray to receive that peace. So Paul says, here's another way that you can experience the joy of the Lord, the peace of the Lord. It's to let your mind... Always be focusing on these things. I think there's nine things there, or eight or nine things there. These things that are honorable and lovely and excellent. Ultimately, thoughts about Jesus and the gospel. So let's look at these things, because he gives us a list here. Continuous, so think about the word think means continuously, constantly, always be filling your mind with thinking, meditating upon these things. So always be thinking about whatever's true. Whatever's true. Aren't we bombarded with a lot of falsehoods most of the day? Untruths, half-truths. Ephesians 4.25 Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Colossians 1.5 Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you've heard before in the word of truth, 
the gospel. Be thinking about the truths of the gospel, the truths of God's word. What does Satan want you to believe? Lies. Satan wants you to believe lies. Because if you can begin to believe lies, then you will be put down a path of sin, fear, despair, anxiety, and all the things that lead to sin. So we have to constantly be battling in our mind for truth. And so true is there first, I think, because ultimately it's the truth of Scripture. It's the truth of the gospel. Okay, second, whatever's honorable. Honorable. Titus 3.8, the saying's trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for all people. That word, I think the word profitable means honorable. These things are honorable. What, what does it mean to be honorable? What, what's something that you think? Something that is high and lifted up and exalted. Not worldly, but honorable. Okay, whatever's just. Talking about the justice of God. Okay. I'm just going to take a side note here. This is a little bit. The Song of Moses in Revelation. Let's just read Revelation 15.3. They sang the Song of Moses, the servant of God, and the Song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. At the end part of the book of Revelation, when Babylon falls, the song in heaven is about the justice of God justice whatever's just we often don't think about the justice of God do we whatever's just just and true are your ways God's ways are perfect even when things go bad and we don't like the way that things go can we ever blame God Well, you can. My question is, should we blame God? Okay. Does God owe us anything? What would what would if we what do we deserve to get if God gave it to us? Wrath, hell, damnation. What does God choose to give us? Grace. So sometimes we as Christians can say to God, that's not fair. Is there, a dis- is there a difference between God's fairness and God's justice? Do we want God to be fair? If we wanted God to be fair, what would we say? Okay, God be fair. Okay, you get what you deserve. God's justice means that he's going to do his will, and we deserve Justice, but God poured that out on Jesus in our place. And so we can never look to God and say, God, you're not being fair. Okay? Whatever's pure. Pure. My goodness. I read a story today on Daily Wire about a rock star. This is going to be a little graphic, so there's no kids in the room. Did you guys read that about this rock star? Female rock star? that urinated on a guy on stage because she had to go to the bathroom? She had to go to the bathroom on stage. She called a guy up there, and then she basically urinated on him on stage and then got him off and used a bunch of expletives at a rock concert in Miami a couple nights ago. And then he's pressing charges for indecent exposure and public urination. (laughs) And I'm like, how low has our society gotten? In that concert at Astroworld the other day, they're, they're saying there's been some satanic things related to that concert. I don't know if you've seen footage of that, where people were trampling, and this lady gets up there, and she's like, people are dying, and they, he continues on his concert. What's his name, Scott? Something, what? Travis Scott. He kept going on. for. Th- there is a lot of things in our world that are not pure. 
and they're just plain evil. And they're all around us. Sometimes they're unavoidable. I mean, you can choose to go look at things that are not pure, and sometimes they just pop up in your face when you're least expecting them. So we have to really be, be, tr- be striving through the power of the Holy Spirit to focus on things that are pure. Uh, 2 Corinthians 11.2. I'm sorry about that. Did I offend anybody by that? I'm just reporting the news. Hopefully you guys are all okay with that. Some of you are like, oh, that's really gross. I didn't expect Pastor Sean to talk about that. I didn't expect to either. It wasn't in my notes. It was just like, whoa, that's a weird story. Talk about something that's impure. <laughs> we'll edit off Facebook. I don't know how to do that. but uh, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Paul's talking about the church there, that we are to be pure in our thinking. 1 Timothy 5.22 Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. James 3.17 But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. 1 John 3, 3, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Okay, whatever's lovely. Whatever's lovely. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. Psalm 81 I mean, Psalm 84, 1 and 2. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy for the living God. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Whatever's lovely. Being in the presence of God. Now, what does commendable mean? Does anybody have a different word in their translation, in their Bible translation besides commendable? The ESV has the word commendable. Of good report. Something that you would commend. The, the only other time that words that words doesn't show up a lot in the New Testament. Second Corinthians six, three through eight. Paul says, We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry, but as servants of God we commend ourselves, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance and afflictions, hardships, calamities beatings, imprisonments, riots, labor, sleepless nights, and hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true. Paul says we commend ourselves in this way. Whatever's commendable would be thinking about things that would bring glory to God and would be full of the fruit of the Spirit, and maybe even a person that you would think that you would li- like want to. Remember last week Paul said imitate him? Somebody that, maybe a, a mentor, somebody in your life that you look up to that would be commendable. And then excellent. Whatever's excellent. Psalm 150, verse 2. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. First Peter 2.9 You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Second Peter 1.3 His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Excellence. And then lastly, whatever is worthy of praise, whatever is praiseworthy. Psalm 18, verse 3, I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. Now you can kind of break down each one of these lists, or you can take them all as a composite. What's Paul saying? Things that are of Christ things that are of the gospel, things that are of, the, of His Word, we are to constantly be thinking about these things. What do we often think about? The exact opposite of these things sometimes. 
you will not have, I hate to use it this way, you will have stinking thinking, okay? You will not have good thinking if your mind is not filled with the truths of Scripture. How does your thought life change? It changes through Scripture. Okay, so go to Romans, this is not in your notes, but go to Romans chapter 12. You, you know this one probably, Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what's the will of God, what's good and acceptable and perfect. Don't be conformed. Your thinking can be conformed to this world. Or your thinking can be transformed and renewed. So the question becomes, okay, how does your thinking become renewed? How are you transformed in your thinking? How do you think about these things? Is it going to happen by osmosis? Is it going to happen automatically? How is it going to happen? What's the old expression? Garbage in, garbage out. If you fill your mind with the things of the world, the things that are going to just be impure and, and all the opposite of those things, that's going to consume your thoughts. So this, the reason Paul uses that term think, consider, meditate, is because these are not the natural things our minds go toward, are they? We have to concentrate. We have to fill our mind with scriptures. We've got to think about these things. Because the other things either will lead us into sin, lead us into anxiety, lead us into discouragement, lead us into lies. So we've always got to keep our minds on guard because our minds, our thinking, is always going to be tempted to go towards anxious, sinful, discouraging, impure thoughts. Okay. So Paul says, first of all, pray. When you pray, you'll experience peace. Second, he says, think. Think about these things. You've you, you got to have holy, pure thinking. Now, he moves to the, the third thing. Pray, think. Verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, what? Practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. That too is in the present tense. Keep on continually putting into practice these things. Now, what are these things? What does Paul say? What you've learned, what you've received, what you've heard, what you've seen. In other words, all the things that Paul is, is teaching the Philippian church, what they heard him preach. And so, by extension, the gospel truths of the scriptures, what we know that the Bible says we are to put these into practice, to live out our faith. Notice how there's two aspects here. There's the inner life and the outer life. What's the inner life? Our thinking. Our thinking is going to eventually lead to our outer life and how we act. And Paul says, make sure that you're your outward lifestyle, how you practice your life, is based upon the Scriptures. So just ask the question, what truths have you learned and received through preaching and teaching, and I'm going to finish it, that you're not putting into practice? I'd venture to say, knowing you people here tonight, you are well-educated in the Scriptures. It's not that you haven't heard sermons. It's not that you haven't heard the Bible. The question is, are you putting into practice what you have learned? Or is your mind just filled with a bunch of Bible knowledge, but it's not making an impact on how you live? What's the Great Commission? Go, therefore, to all the nations, make disciples, baptizing them, and teaching them to what? Obey all that I've commanded 
and I will be with you even to the end of the age. It's not just teaching them. Sometimes we say we just got to teach. Jesus says very, very clear in the Great Commission, teaching them to what? Obey all that I've commanded. We don't merely teach for information. We teach for transformation. If all you get is information and it never leads to a life transformation, you're just soaking in a bunch of knowledge and it's not making any impact on your life. And Paul says, listen, you've learned a lot. Look at verse 9. You've learned, you've received, you've heard, you've seen it in me. Now go put it into practice. So there's things that we've learned, but also notice what he says, what you've seen in me. So another thing Paul says is, what examples of faith have you observed through those who've taught you? You not only learn the scriptures, which is the most important, but you also learn through the example of other godly people that are maybe a mentor or maybe an example or somebody in your life that is, is more mature than you are spiritually that you look at their life. You're to put those into practice. Now, Paul's not very specific here as, to, as far as what that looks like. He just says, hey, listen, you've, you've learned a lot of stuff. You've seen a lot of stuff. You've been around me a long time. Now go live it out. James says it the same way in James 1, 22 through 25. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he's like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. James is like, it's like this. You go look at yourself in the mirror and you walk off and forget what you look like. That's the same thing as like, I read my Bible and I walk off and forget what I read. And James is like, no. Read your Bible Think upon these things, meditate upon these things, and then go put them into practice. And then how does Paul end this? And the God of what? Peace will be with you. Peace is repeated there, right? How did he start it? Pray, you will receive peace. Think about these things and put them into practice. And if you do all three of those things, if you pray, you think, and you do, the God of peace will be what? Will be with you. Have you ever done a study? I should have put this in there. Have you ever done a study on God with you? What's the name of our church? It's not a trick question. Are you what? Emmanuel, which means what? God is with us. God said to Abraham, I'm with you. God said to Isaac, I'm with you. God said to Jacob, I'm with you. God said to Joseph, I am with you. God said to Moses, I am with you. God said to Joshua, I am with you. God said to Elijah, I am with you. God said to David, I am with you. Jesus was born. He shall be called Emmanuel. God is with you. What were the last words that Jesus said in the Great Commission? Behold, I am with you always. How does Paul say here? The God of peace will be with you. God will encourage you. God will equip you. So these three things. When you pray, God's peace will guard your heart and mind. When you continually think about gospel truths, God's peace will fill your heart. And when you continually obey the truth, God's peace will give you strength to obey. So here's the bottom line. When you pray diligently to Jesus, think deeply about gospel truths, and practice obedience to the word, those three things, the Lord fills your heart with unspeakable joy and peace. How do you start verse 4? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. He starts with rejoice. He moves to peace. Then he ends with peace. Peace and joy. It comes in prayer. 
It comes in thinking, and it comes in obey. And it all started when those two ladies weren't getting along. There was no peace. There's a third type of peace. There's peace with God in your initial salvation. There's the peace of God that fills your heart and mind with that feeling. And thirdly, there's peace with one another. If you're at peace with God and you have the peace with God, that should lead to peace with one another. These two ladies weren't at peace with each other. Probably because they lacked the peace of God in their hearts. All right. We're getting done really early tonight, so either you have a lot of questions or you get to go hang out in the foyer before you pick up your kids. Or some of you that don't have kids, just go home. What questions do you guys have? Or gals. Doesn't have to be guys. Guys. Use guys. Or when I was growing up, y'all. All y'all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Did you? She said, "If you, you take your take out a piece of paper and put down your list of worries, and then tr- trade those into prayers. Pray about those. Cast all your cares upon Him because He cares about you." It's very quiet in here. All right. Next week, if you want to come, nobody will be here. Um, There's no Wednesday night next week. You get to enjoy your day before Thanksgiving with your family. There's a whole, RE1 has the full week off, so... Um, some people may decide to go out of town or whatever, but there's no Wednesday night next week. So, live stream people on Facebook don't expect anything either. So, all right, no final questions, comments, snide remarks. All right, well, let's pray. Father, thank you for this time tonight, and Lord, I do pray if there if there's anybody here tonight that's got anxiety. They're anxious about something. Lord, would you just give them that peace that passes understanding deep in their hearts to know that you're sovereign, that you're good, that you're faithful. Just give them that peace deep in their hearts to know that you will answer in your timing and in your way, and you'll take care of them. Lord, help us to have minds that are so focused on the the things that are pure, the things that are true. Lord, help us to think about these things. Lord, we're so... Bombarded with so many just negative thinking things to think about. And Lord, just help us to have the time to meditate and think upon your word. And Lord, help us to put into practice the things we've learned. Lord, so many times we know a lot of things where our heads are filled with knowledge, but we don't really obey. We don't put it into practice. So Holy Spirit, give us that grace to be able to do that. And Lord, help us to have joy. Help us to have peace. And, and, and earlier when Paul said, help us to be big-hearted, Lord, let that be what we're known for. We're known for being big-hearted. We're known for being generous. We're known for being joyful. We're known for having the peace of the Lord. Lord, just really it's the, the fruit of the Spirit being evident in our life. Just help us to be those type of people through your power alone in us. We can't produce it. Only you can do that, Holy Spirit. Bring us back safely um, next time we gather. And Lord, we thank you for all the ways you've been good to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.